Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and welcome to Master Leadership, where we connect with leaders worldwide to gain insights on important topics to help us on our journey towards greater significance. If you would like to participate as a guest, or if you have a question that you would like to ask a guest, go to masterleadership.org for more information. Andrew Heaton is a comedian, author, and political satirist. He's the host of the Political Orphanage comedy and news podcast and sci-fi deep dive podcast, Alienating the Audience. He's a frequent Reason TV contributor and hosted the popular web series, Mostly Weekly. He's performed stand-up comedy at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival as the finalist in the China International Stand-Up Competition and throughout the United States and Europe. He once opened for William Shatner, who said, He's very funny. So there. As a political comedian, Andrew has entertained numerous think tanks and advocacy groups, student associations, and sinister political action committees. He's a regular at Electoral Dysfunction at the People's Improv Theater in New York and the Totally Dishonest Media Show at Stand Up New York. He hosted the award-winning series Econ Pop, a comedy show which explained economics through popular culture. Andrew Heaton is a former congressional staffer and the author of the best-selling work of political satire, Laughter is Better Than Communism, and two funny paranormal novels, Frank Got Abducted, about aliens, and Happier as Werewolves, a tender coming-of-age novel involving werewolves. Our interview will begin right after messages from our sponsors. Have you been wanting to launch your podcast and just haven't found the right resources? I launched Master Leadership Podcast in 2016, and it now ranks in top 1% globally. I've gathered all I've learned and created Master Your Podcast in a Weekend course on Master Your Swag app so that you have everything you need to share your voice with the world minus those excuses. So download Master Your Swag app on Google or Apple platforms to access the Master Your Podcast course and launch your podcast this weekend. Welcome, Andrew Keaton. How are you? I am living the dream, Lily. It is a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you so much. I'm having a great time. I love this. Where are you? Tell us. And then it treehouse in Latvia. I'm on a vacation with my girlfriend. Apologies. We scheduled this, came into conflict, but I made it work. And I'm presently overlooking a beautiful, beautiful lake here in the Baltics. Uh, it's about to be sunset. And uh, yeah, I'm up in a treehouse that inexplicably has Wi-Fi, which is how I'm able to communicate with you. You know, it's so funny because I've been wanting to vacation in a treehouse. So this is good. I'll put in a good word for you. You want to come to Latvia. They're lovely people. I'm sure they'd be happy to host you. Thank you. So we're excited to have you on our podcast. Are you ready to point to our listeners? 
Oh, very much so. All right. So, Andrew, tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now. So I host a podcast called The Political Orphanage, so-called because I'm very tired of the whole red team versus blue team understanding for everything and this kind of constant Republican versus Democratic battle. I'm very worn out by that. So I wanted to make a show for people that are a little bit more independent, a little bit more aloof. Uh, And I've been doing that full time for coming up on five years now. The route that I took to being a professional broadcaster, I was doing stand up, but I also had a lot of political background as well. I'd worked for the United States Congress for a little while. I got a master's degree in international politics, and I ended up doing stand-up at night while I was working at both Congress and getting my degree. And when I eventually moved to New York City, it occurred to me that I could actually combine these two things. It had never occurred to me before to be funny and political simultaneously. And I went, oh, there aren't that many people doing it. There's certainly not very many people doing it well. And so I went in and did that. I ended up working in television for about three years as a television writer. And then I went on and did political satire videos, like funny sketches and things for a group called Reason TV. I'm still friends with them. And then I split off and ended up doing my own thing. I'm now a full-time podcaster doing policy analysis and author interviews and just kind of deep dives on various topics that I think are relevant to the news cycle. Well, you know, I love that because a lot of us are kind of tired of the political red team versus blue team. So the political orphanage politics can be really funny. Oh, yes. Any field that has a lot of egos in it and a lot of certainty and also the capacity for failure and politics has all of those things in spades. So politics can be very funny. I think most people are actually a lot less partisan than we've been led to believe. My experience these last few years has been that there's a tremendous amount of people in the country who have friends they disagree with. And that's that's a part of their life that they enjoy, that they're a Republican and they know Democrats, or they're a Democrat, but their uncle's a Republican and they like that. And it's a lot of fun to do because I find that there's a surprising amount of people that want to be challenged, that want to encounter other ideas. And I'm very fortunate in that I'm from Oklahoma, so I'm from the middle of the country, but I tend to live in very blue, creative, cosmopolitan cities. And so most of my modern adult friends are very, very liberal, but this interlocutor between these things and can kind of draw in different perspectives. So it's great. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Wonderful. Now, where can we get more information on what you do? If you want a, an easy way to do this, go to andrewheaton.tv. That's Andrew, H-E-A-T-O-N.tv. And that link will take you directly to a bunch of different apps for my podcast. And you just click any one of those. If you use Apple or whatever it is, it'll take you there. You click that. And then I would just scroll through and find a topic that you find interesting. Lily, I know just based on our brief interactions, you were very much on top of your game. You were very, very professional. It would not surprise me if this is going to air four months from now, just based on how much planning you clearly do. Um, So I don't know where my show will be by the time this one comes out, but I'll say in the meantime, what's been on the show recently is I just flew out to Germany and I interviewed a historian out there about how Nazis approached economics, not because I like Nazis or I'm suggesting anybody become a Nazi, but because I'm interested in how fascists approached economics. And I feel like that term has come up more in the last few years, and I want to have a better understanding of it and make sure that I am applying it correctly. So I went out there and did a deep dive on it. And when Roe v. Wade was overturned here three or four months ago, I read through the entirety of Roe v. Wade and I read through other Supreme Court decisions. 
and did a show on the jurisprudence behind it. So rather than talking about how I feel about abortion, I went into, this is how judges approach this topic. This has been the legal fight. I'm doing a lot of research these last couple of weeks on what would happen in the event of nuclear war, which I know is not a happy topic, but I am luridly interested in it. It is morbidly fascinating to me. So anyway, there's a wide variety of episode topics, and I'd suggest people check out the program and just scroll through until they find something that seems interesting to them and then dive in. You know, for a lot of us who avoid politics, this is certainly sexy. (laughs) I'm glad to hear that. I regret calling it the political orphanage. I mean, it made sense at the time because I wanted to signal that it was a nonpartisan show, which it is. But the word political, I think a lot of people infer that there's a lot more politics than there is. I am really not very interested intellectually in individual elections. So like whether the Democrats are going to win, I've got my preferences, mind you. It's just that kind of play-by-play, we're 30 points up in Minnesota. That kind of thing is of less interest to me. I'm much more interested in kind of the underlying concepts that people are fighting over and going, okay, student loan debt. Why is college more expensive? What is forgiving student loan debt going to do? What do the economics say? So I really like kind of trying to figure out the plumbing underneath all of the political stuff and why things work as they do and how we could make things work better. I'm not really that focused on Republicans versus as Democrats ever. The reason why this speaks to me is because you do all the research and I just get to really listen <laughs> and learn and I love that. And certainly I'm sure there's so many people that feel the same way. So I love what you're bringing. Andrew, as a lifelong learner, what are you learning right now? At this very moment, I have been learning about post-Soviet Baltic culture and history. Yesterday evening, I just met up with another podcaster who lives in Riga, the capital of Latvia, and he gave me a kind of a Soviet history tour. And at one point he said, if I could tell him a Cold War joke he'd never heard before, he would buy me a beer. I'm a comedian. You you know what you got yourself into, Christoph. So I did it. I won. He was better than his word. He bought me a beer and a herring. He got me a pickled herring from the local supermarket. We walked around drinking beer. So I've been learning about that. I too, Lily, am a lifelong learner, and I am so fortunate in the career that I have. My girlfriend jokingly says that I run the University of Heaton. Basically, every two, three weeks, I pick a topic and I go, you know what? I don't know a lot about nuclear energy. I wonder how that works. And then I'll just take two, three weeks and I'll research the various forms of nuclear reactors, and I'll talk about what the arguments are. It's kind of all over the board. So I pick all sorts of things, depending on what I think is either relevant or what I'm interested in, and just kind of go with it. Beautiful. Now, can you hit us with a leadership joke? With a leadership joke? Uh Can I get back to you on that? The mental file folder I have for jokes doesn't have a leadership label. So So I'm going to have to think about it. Okay. So let me be fair. Let me back up. What about the joke that you told this gentleman? Okay. Yeah, I can do that. Okay. So I'm going to say it's a corny Cold War joke, by the way. This is not a top shelf joke in my opinion. (laughs) However, we were going for esoteric. I'm just trying to get the beer, right? Because I know how to play the game. He had a joke about Nixon and Brezhnev. And basically the butt of his joke was that the Soviets have gulag. And then I went, yeah, I've got a joke. I wanted to keep that format going. So Brezhnev and Nixon meet and they decide they're going to solve the Cold War the good old fashioned way. They're just going to have a dog fight. We're not going to have a shooting war. We're not going to do any more of this arms build up. We're going to let it all go away. Five years from now, you're going to take your meanest dog. Five years from now, America is going to take our meanest dog. We're going to have them fight. Whoever wins, they won the Cold War. 
they get all the trade treaties and things. And they went, okay, great. So the Russians go back to Russia and Brezhnev begins this program of getting the meanest dogs they can find in Russia. It's the meanest street dogs and then breeding them with each other and selecting the meanest dog from that litter and like not giving it enough food so the puppies are fighting each other. And they do this for a while. Then they introduce a wolf and they put some wolf blood in him and they make him aggressive and they give him steroids. I mean, there's really, by five years in, they got this really strong monster of a dog. And so Brezhnev shows up to the pre-appointed location and he's got this really angry, nasty dog snarling and looks like it could bite through a chain. And Nixon shows up and he's got a six foot long wiener dog. Brezhnev thinks, well, this is a cinch. The Americans are fools. They brought this a six foot long wiener dog. And so they blow the whistle and they both release their dogs. And this Russian dog is snapping through the air. The Soviet dog teeth glaring these massive incisors saliva flying everywhere and he lunges at the six foot long wiener dog and the wiener dog opens its mouth and just swallows it whole and everybody is aghast brezhnev being a man of his word goes you know you've won the cold war and then afterwards he and nixon are getting a vodka and he says i don't know how you did that he explains how much money and time they spent making this ferocious dog and it was swallowed up by our six foot long wiener dog and nixon says well we spent about a million dollars making that crocodile look like a dog. Anyway, it's a long, it's a long story. It's, I wouldn't do that in stand-up, mind you, because that's a long, long story to get to for a punchline. But it got me a beer and it got me a pickled herring. And that's what matters. That's what, yeah. I wasn't going for laughter. I was going for a free beer and I pulled it off. There you go. All right. So clearly, you know, humor is important. It does connect people on different levels, even people who sit across the line who are red team, blue team. It does connect us. So tell us about the importance of humor and how you use it to spread ideas. Great question. And I completely agree with your observation. I think humor is one of the absolute best mediums to not only dispense knowledge and information, but to do so across pre-existing ideological or dogmatic impositions that might otherwise stop us from doing that. I've been amazed at how often humor is good at getting a point across. And I think the reason for it is if you and I are going to talk about minimum wage, just for our theoretical purposes here, I think it should be $40 an hour and you think it should be $2 an hour or something like that. And we start arguing about it, even if we're doing it kindly and we're doing it in a civil manner, that act of arguing is going to, to some extent, get our hackles up. The longer we argue, the more entrenched we're going to become. And humor is this wonderful reprieve we get from that, where almost everybody's willing to walk with you for the length of a joke. The one I just gave is a very long one, but a normal joke in stand-up comedy is about 30 seconds. It's usually 20 to 30 seconds. You do two per minute when you're doing stand-up. And if I begin with a joke, I'm saying this premise, People will listen to the premise and they are going to actively engage with it because they want to hear the punchline. And if the punchline's funny, most people will laugh at the punchline. And it's at that moment when your guard is down, where you're having fun and you're enjoying the joke and enjoying the moment, the person's able to get their idea across in a way that is a lot more pristine and a lot more open. And I don't think it's like a brainwashing thing either. I think it's a way of getting more information to people so that they can have a broader expanse of ideas to pick from. I find it to be a really, really interesting thing. I've been doing stand-up now for about 10 years, and I started out in Washington, D.C., which is a very political crowd. A tough crowd, too. Actually, you know what? D.C.'s a fun crowd. I like D.C. because historically, I mean, now it might be different because everybody's very weird about politics now. But when I started out doing it, D.C. tended to be a really highly educated crowd of 
young transients who like drinking. Uh, mm. And that does well for stand-up comedy because it means everybody wants to go out and meet people and make friends. There's no joke you're going to do that's going to get past anybody. So it's good to start out at because you learn as you progress to not alienate audience members, but you're not apt to do it as much in D.C., at least back in the day. But I could do jokes and I could do partisan jokes. I could make fun of Republicans or I could make fun of Democrats. I still do in my stand-up. And my experience was and is that if it's a funny joke, people will laugh at it. And you'll be able to communicate a criticism through that humor that they'll go, yeah, okay, point acknowledged. And they'll laugh at it and you can move on. But that right. doesn't always work when you're arguing with people. So it's really, really good for yes. them. Yes. All right. So, Andrew, when you think of leadership today, mm -hmm. what most concerns you and what are you most hopeful about? The thing that I'm most concerned about is a real increase in people's and particularly in leaders desire to be lockstep with a group of some kind and to preemptively demonize whatever group they're competing against. In my field, this is very relevant because I work in political media, so I see it all the time. But I am very disturbed by the way our leaders are now approaching each other and the way that they discuss each other to regular people like you and me. And the reason I say that is I think most people broadly speaking, want good things for everybody, want everybody to get along, want solutions to problems. And what we're doing in the political sphere is we're on the same team. America's the same team. We have opponents. We don't have enemies. We're getting into these very necessary good arguments to try and come up with solutions to common problems we all agree on. And that's very different than saying, this person over here is not my opponent. They're my enemy. And they're a mortal threat to me. And they must be defeated. They must be destroyed. And all of their motivations are willfully evil. There's a very big difference between thinking that somebody's in error and thinking that they're in sin, that they are mistaken or they're poorly informed versus they are willfully evil. And I, that really bothers me when I hear our elected leaders talk about each other that way. Why do you think that's on the rise? You know what? I've thought really, really hard about this. I think it all boils down to structure, electoral incentives, really. And I know that that's kind of a boring, unsexy answer, but I think that human nature has not changed over the course of my lifetime. Some of the elements that have changed is there is social media. There are vacuum chambers that are happening. But I think the main thing is this. The electoral system we have in the United States is a first-past-the-polls electoral system with closed primaries in most instances. And that's a big mouthful. For anybody that's not a policy wonk like me, what that means is whoever gets the most votes in an election wins the election, even if there are five or six candidates, and that person would not be the overall consensus candidate for a district. And then the other bit is that we have the parties themselves select their candidates rather than the district. And what that ends up meaning is effectively, and the polling will back me up on this, and all of the scientific literature that I've read will back me up on this as well, most elected leaders are from the state legislature up, and about 90% of elections throughout our country are more or less foregone conclusions for the party in power. In 2020, I think we only had about an 8% turnover between Republicans and Democrats. Most of the elected districts were there. So if you're in office, if you're a member of Congress, and you're a Republican, you know that there's not really a serious threat in your district from a Democrat. You don't really have to worry about that. What you have to worry about is getting primaried by another Republican. And the same goes for Democrats. If you're a Democrat in New York City, you don't have to worry about a Republican defeating you. You've got to worry about a Democrat defeating you. And the result of that is Republicans and Democrats that are in office now have no incentive from an electoral standpoint to ever work across the aisle 
to humanize their colleagues that are in another party or to have any type of bipartisan compromise with colleagues in the other party. Because when they do, they know somebody's going to come up from behind them further right or further left from whatever party they're in and challenge them and they might get knocked out. So the incentive structure right now rewards us for being partisan and for really contributing to the base rather than doing anything else. And the way to fix that, I think, would be ranked choice voting, which we've been experimenting with in Maine and with Alaska and with a number of cities, Oklahoma City from where I'm from. I won't go into this, but the mayor is an interesting guy and he's not the kind of person you'd expect a place like Oklahoma City to elect. But part of the reason is we've got ranked choice voting in Oklahoma City. I think that ranked choice voting would help. And the other big thing that I really think would help would have a thing called top five open primaries. And what that means is, say like in Alaska, this is the way they do it. They've got top four. Rather than having a primary where the Republicans and Democrats select their candidates, and it's going to be the people that turn out that are the most liberal and the most conservative, which means that the rest of the state, about half the state, a third of the state, has to pick between two extreme candidates. Rather than doing that, during the primaries, everybody that wants to run for governor or whatever runs for governor, and everybody goes out and votes in the primaries. The top four candidates are the ones that are going to end up on the main ballot. Then there's going to be ranked choice between them. I think that's a brilliant way to do things. I think that we ought to let the people pick the candidates that are going to run. And then the Republicans and Democrats are more than welcome to, at that point, choose which candidate they want to vote for. That they're private organizations, that's their right. But as it is right now in most states, in most situations, we have two parties that no longer represent the entirety of the country, that don't even represent a plurality of the country, that are selecting extreme candidates that most of us, myself included, do not think represent us. And then they get elected and they only represent their party. So that's a very long answer to your question, Lily, but I think that's probably the main culprit in what's going on right now. And I think electoral reform would be the best way to push us back. Yeah, and what you mentioned, ranked choice voting and top five open primaries. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Did I get, yes, get that right? right? Yeah. Okay, so, I mean, it, it does bring hope, which is what we need. Mm -hmm. um, not just hope, but a plan, right? And I think there is hope there too. I mean, I'm part of the commentariat where I'm like an associate junior member of the commentariat or whatever. But in any event, I hang out with a lot of people that talk in media. And I have found that 10 years ago, nobody knew what ranked choice voting was. I knew what ranked choice voting was because I'm a policy nerd, but it was really not a well-known term. And I find now that most people like the idea because whether they're in media or in politics or just a regular voter, they like the idea of going, okay, I really hope Bernie Sanders wins, but if he doesn't win, I don't want to throw my vote away. It sounds better for me to say Bernie Sanders, number one, Hillary Clinton, number two. And if he doesn't get it, I don't throw my vote. Or I hate the Republicans and the Democrats. I'm going to vote for Gary Johnson. But if he doesn't win, I'd rather vote for Hillary. Whatever your individual org chart is, I think most people see the benefit to it. Whereas what is happening right now in the current system we have is there's almost like an ideological gerrymandering going on where we're presented with two options that are demonstrably more liberal and more conservative than the average voter and then the majority of voters, and we have to choose between them. And so I think that there are good signs that people are aware of this. There's lots and lots of think tanks that are working on this. I've interviewed a lot of guests on the political orphanage. There's a guy, Lee Drutman, who's just going to come on here in, in another week or two, talk about things they're doing in the Netherlands and Ireland that we could borrow from wouldn't even require a constitutional amendment to do it. Congress could do it internally. I see good things there. And I think that on the municipal and the state level, there's been lots of good things going on. Like I said, Maine has instituted top four open primaries in ranked choice voting. And regardless of where you fall on Trump and all of that, Lisa Murkowski, the Republican senator, was one of two Republicans that voted to remove Trump from office in the impeachment proceedings. 
I'm saying this just as a structural engineering analysis. I think the reason she felt comfortable doing that as a Republican was she knew the way that the electoral system in Alaska is set up is that you are rewarded for representing the majority of voters rather than representing the base of your party. And so she felt comfortable. She knew she'd be in the top five. She knew even if the Republicans didn't like her, she'd still get in the top five and she could count on enough Democrats and moderates coming over. So it facilitated consensus. Maine's been playing with it too. New York City just uh, introduced ranked choice voting in their last municipal election. So there's lots of things going on. Optimistically, I think that most Americans from every political stripe recognize that there's a lot of serious problems with the current political system. And there's a lot of people that have entrenched interests in maintaining it. And we're figuring out ways to try and alter and restructure and reform the system. I had Andrew Yang on my program about a year ago. I really like Andrew Yang. I think he's a really cool guy. And he's still in favor of UBI. That was the big thing he was known for when he ran in 2020. But since then, he's really, really turned his focus onto electoral reform and is doing a lot of interesting stuff with that. He's also the forward party that he's started. You don't have to leave the other party. or like You could be a Republican and join the forward party, or you can be a Democrat and join the forward party. And that's kind of a novel way of doing things we've not done in a long time. So there's some good hope. I think we might make it. You know, Andrew, you are helping to make politics sexy in my eyes. <laughs> the <laughs> political you. orphanage, I will absolutely put that on my listening list for podcasts. Now, we have a question from a former guest. Mm-hmm. Leilani Cure wants to know, what are some unconventional leadership tips that you have for us? So I say this as somebody in media. Unfortunately, I can't speak to people that are running corporations and things, but for somebody that kind of has his own flock to a great extent, because I have a lot of people that listen to me every week, I'll say I have an intellectual leadership role within that. What I have found that surprised me was just how much you can trust people to listen to you and to encounter ideas that they disagree with and strongly disagree with, so long as you aren't contemptible of them. I have been amazed repeatedly at how open-minded people are about how forgiving they are, how tolerant they are of ideas that they really don't agree with as long as you treat the person you're talking to or about with respect. I just did an episode on my show on religion. I am an agnostic. I'm a friendly, low-wattage agnostic, but I'm no longer religious, but I see a lot of value in it. I used to be religious. I'm still friends with my priest. So in that episode where we spent an hour talking about religion, I don't think I had anybody that was religious or devout come in and think that I thought that they were stupid or I thought they were bad people because I don't. The thing that leapt into my head is that when you're dealing with sensitive, passionate issues, if you can go in and talk to people as if you think that they're decent people who are intelligent and you treat them that way, they will rise to the occasion and you will be amazed at how much you can accomplish. Hmm. You know what, Andrew, I love that. We often talk about how one of the pillars of leadership is to add value to other people. And when we do that, there's so many possibilities that open up. They appreciate that. Now, as a listener of this podcast, what's a question that you would like a future leadership guest to respond to? Like, what are you curious about? I would love to hear from other leaders about how they juggle work ethic and ambition with enjoying life and balancing their social life. I know that this is an old topic, but it's one that I struggle with. I would love to hear how people make those decisions and how they go, okay, I'm going to take Friday off versus I'm going to work really, really hard. I struggle to do that on my end. I'd love to hear other people weigh in on it. Yes. I love that question. I will certainly pose it to a future guest. Now, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? I'd love to go out on an optimistic note. If you are 
walking through the United States and any city you care to go to or any rural area you care to go to, I think if you tripped over and you fell and passed out, the people around you would help you. Mm. I think you can count on most human beings to be decent, good people. I think that the majority of us want good things for everybody. And mm. I think that there's a lot of people in media and in politics that have money and power to be gained through division and divisiveness. So for folks at home, I would just remind you, you're not alone, that there are lots of people in the country that probably are feeling whatever you're feeling. And there's a lot more good people than we have been led on to think. And that we should all go outside, enjoy our day, and know that there's a lot of other good people out there. Andrew, that's a wonderful way to close us out. So tune in to The Political Orphanage with Andrew Heaton. And also, if you want to connect with him, andrewheaton.tv. And Andrew, I want to thank you so much for adding value to me and to our listeners. It's been a fun conversation. My pleasure. I very much enjoyed it. Thank you, Lily. All right. Have a great day. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.